Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined by our chairman, Sean McCarthy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. Sean, I've got your expertise on the podcast this week to link to a a pretty popular topic, which is around safety and culture. And so I'd love your insights. One is around, you know, is a safety culture different from a culture in general? You know, are there such things? And then the second is, what's the impact of it? You know, so how do we actually shape a culture that's going to get safe outcomes? So maybe if we start from the top, Sean, you know, is, is there such a thing as a safety culture? What's your view on that? Yes and no. So a good consultant's answer to kick that one off. <laughs> it depends. Um, it depends exactly on the copy to say that. Because this stuff is complex. There's no simple answer to it. But anyway, uh, is there such a thing as a safety culture? Yes, there is. Obviously, I mean, it's a culture within which people behave in a safe manner, take initiative around safety issues, et cetera. But whether the, I mean, the risk an organization takes in emphasizing a safety culture is that they'll end up with what's called functional cultures throughout the organization, which may not be linked. So you might have one part of the, org- the operations people having a safety culture, the marketing people having a customer culture, a customer-centric kind of culture, whatever it might uh-huh. be, a uh-huh. quality culture, a service culture, et cetera, uh-huh. et cetera. And the research is quite clear on that over recent years when organizations go down that what's called a functional culture route. It's usually the cost of an overall culture within the organization. You end up with different kinds of cultures throughout the place that will eventually um, bang up against each other. So our advice is to not go down that functional culture route, but to talk about a culture of, I don't know, excellence or something. And that's the word that I've tended to use. We want a culture of operational excellence. And so in this part of the organization, operational excellence is giving superb customer service. In this part of the organization, operational excellence is safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what you don't want is an innovation culture, a safety culture, an entrepreneurship culture, a customer culture, whatever it might be, et cetera, because it simply doesn't work. Well, and it's kind of confusing as well. You know, I come in from 9 to 11, I'm doing my customer centricity culture, and then from 11 to 12, that's innovation culture hour, you know? (laughs) It doesn't really make sense, you know? Culture is, you have a culture, but it has different outcomes. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And for those that want to know whether there's a a relationship between organizational culture and safety, my usual response to that, I've got time, rather than just a quick yes or no answer, is that it might be interesting to know that the organizational culture inventory actually has its roots in safety. Mm. So uh, Dr. Robert Cook was uh, recruited by the U.S. government, a department, to undertake a review. This involved the nuclear power stations, and they were interested in what drove safety in those establishments. And he created, in fact, it was the first version of the OCI that I worked with in New Zealand in the late 80s, was called the Systems Reliability Survey, and it was looking at safety. So I was out on an oil rig for five days, Hmm. looking at safety processes there and using this as a survey to do that. And part of this uh, Systems Reliability Survey looked at safety practices and culture. And to cut a very long story short, as Rob says, the strongest indicator or predictor of safety performance or the greatest link with safety performance was actually the culture part of the survey, not the operational practices, not the lunchbox meetings and 
which you do have to have, I'm not saying that, but it, culture actually influences safety significantly more than safety practices. So it comes back to what culture is. I mean, culture is the shared behavioral norms and expectations. So are the norms and expectations here around being safe? Or in fact, does management require you to, to be unsafe despite all the posters that extol safety around the organization? So is there a relationship between safety and culture? Absolutely. And it's the other way around. There's a relationship between culture and safety. So we know that safety is an outcome of organizational culture and that if you can create what we would call a constructive culture and one of your outcomes of safety, you should see dramatic improvement in that. In fact, we used to do a lot of work in industrial safety in New Zealand in the 1980s and it got to the point where it was so easy we could guarantee a 90% reduction in lost time injuries within nine months where you get your money back. So that gave us a bit of a challenge. And it was, you know, as the old expression says, money for jam, really. And so it was very exciting for us to be able to be working in a behavioral field like culture, but seeing observable outcomes, observable, measurable outcomes like safety as a consequence of that. You don't get those opportunities very often in our industry. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating, you know, and, and that connection between practices and culture, that, that's interesting too. I guess it depends how do you do it, you know, it's kind of the culture element. That's um, the culture bit, yeah. Of that. Talk to me a bit more, Sean, because you talked about a, a constructive culture and, and if, we, yeah. if people are, you know, aware of our model, what is it about a constructive culture that leads to better safety outcomes? Yeah. Firstly, let's focus on one of the key styles in that constructive cluster, the achievement style. So originally developed by McClelland, and we teach all this stuff at accreditation around achievement thinking, et cetera. But one of the key elements of achievement thinking is a belief in cause and effect, that if I do this, this is the likely consequence of it. And if this is happening, then this must be what's caused it. And so when we take that way of thinking, achievement thinking, and put it into organizational context in terms of achievement culture, does the culture encourage people to think in terms of cause and effect? Does it encourage people to look at what they're doing and understand what the implications are of what they're doing? Does it encourage them to look at what's happening and analyze that? And, and having just talked about problem-solving process in another podcast, it's about applying the problem-solving process. So what is our problem? What is the objective? What are the alternative ways of solving that problem? Evaluate each of those, et cetera. So the same process occurs within safety. So part of that 1980s experience of ours and being able to reduce LTIs significantly in a relatively short period of time is to teach applied achievement thinking throughout the organization, which is around understanding how cause and effect works and understanding goal setting. So it always amused us that we would go into uh, the organization, maybe work with the operational management team or even the top executive team and say, what goal would be a reasonable reduction in safety performance for you? For instance, and they'd say, well, a 50% reduction in LTIs or something like that would be an outstanding achievement, etc. So we'd say, fine, tick the box on that. Then we'd go down into the factory floor or wherever, and we'd do some basic training to people around the goal-setting process and cause and effect, etc. It's not particularly elaborate. Just getting them to understand how that stuff works, and after having talked about goal setting, we then say, right, we want to talk about what sort of goal would be acceptable for us to set for safety improvement measures. And every time they would say, well, 100% reduction in LTI sounds like a good idea because that's my fingers and toes you're talking about. Uh. So the people 
the factory floor staff, for want of an expression, would always set a goal that was higher than what management would set. And that's applied to human thinking. Set where you work within a field of imposed goals, set your own goals around those imposed goals and set them higher than where they've been imposed upon you. Uh But by this notion of cause and effect, usually when an accident occurs, it's a bit of a generalization, but just for want of a thought, where an accident occurs, it's where somebody has not been using achievement thinking. They're thinking in terms of magic, fate, luck, magic, and chance, as McClelland used to call it, rather than what might happen if I do this. So if somebody's working on a valve and that valve was stuck, and instead of trying to unstuck the valve, they get a bloody sledgehammer and give it a good belt or something like that. They haven't thought about what might happen if I belt it with the sledgehammer. And one of the possibilities, of course, is you break the valve. Mm. So now you've got a significantly bigger problem. We've all done that in our own personal life when we haven't been thinking and we've used a, you know, a hammer to crack a nut kind of thing. And now we don't even have a nut left at the end of it. Mm. You know, and so it's really about that achievement thinking, you know, and, and what sits under there? My, if it makes a difference. A belief yep. in cause and effect. It's that problem-solving yep. stuff. And ultimately, I think, Sean, it's people are thinking. They're actively thinking, Correct. right? Correct. Well, you know, cause and effect, and my if it makes a difference, is actively thinking. And I think sometimes, you know, so if that's the constructive lens, I see a lot of organizations try to solve safety issues by bringing in a whole raft of rules and policies and procedures. Now we need some of that. Right, We need safe practices, and, and you talked about that a bit earlier. But sometimes I think it replaces people thinking for themselves. Correct. You know? I mean, and so instead of thinking, I'm just going to follow the rules, even when they might be wrong. That's right. I mean, so people should be able to question the rules, not necessarily break the rules, but they should be able to question the rules. And more importantly, people should understand why the rule exists. So I've seen, again, in cultural terms in the circuitplex, I've seen an organization a financial services organization, not a safety one, reduce their conventional style and increase their achievement style simply by emphasizing in all of their frontline leader training the importance of explaining to people why the rule exists. Because if I'm a frontline leader and you come to me and say, oh, what the hell do I have to do this for? I say, oh, I don't bloody know. Just head office wants us to do it, Mm -hmm. right? That's complete lack of achievement thinking. So if I can look at you and say, look, it's really important that we complete that form because A, B, and C, and what it's designed to achieve is D, E, F, etc. You might still be unhappy about having to do the form, but at least now you know why you're doing it, which will reduce your unhappiness next time you have to do it. So we, we tend, and it's not about in our conventional versus achievement stuff, it's not about not having rules. It's about how those rules are thought about, how those rules are used, and how those rules are described to the people that have to adhere to those rules. And I think with that, Sean, you know, it's, so the, the critical thing is understand why do we have the rules? Rules are useful, but Correct. why do the, we have it? Because you know the, what? You can't write a rule for every situation. It's just not possible, or it's not yeah. possible to remember a rule for every situation. But if I understand why, what's the intent of the rule? Yeah. And when a different situation comes along, I can apply the intent without necessarily having the exact rule. Yep. And that's where it's important for safety is that safety is about people thinking. Mm-hmm. So the more you emphasize the rules, the less they think. And it's also, if you emphasize the rules, it's about compliance rather yep. than yep. outcomes, rather yep. than safety outcomes. It's about complying. And, and so what happens the second someone's not looking, I might not comply. Because if I don't understand why, then yep. really this thing's just a kind of a pain in my backside, potentially. Yes, you want to to be able to shift from compliance to commitment. 
Yes. And so any any model of developmental stages and organizational safety will illustrate those stages. And after the compliance one will always come become something like the independence phase or the commitment phase or the reality mm. phase, whatever they want to call it. Mm. But it's shifting from I do it because I'm told I have to do it to I do it because it's the right thing to do. Mm. I don't mean morally the right thing to do, but I've been I've been told not to use a sledgehammer to try and open a stuck valve, so I don't use a sledgehammer to try and open a stuck valve. Yeah, you know, I often think it's like the why don't you drink and drive? And if it's only because the police might catch you, yeah, rather than hey, because it's protecting myself, my family, other road users, yeah, then the second the cop's not there, you know, and, yep. and you know the cop's not there, you might drink and drive, right? And it's the wrong wrong move to make. Okay, so that's kind of talking about from a compliance point of view, which I often see because it feels like a good way to solve these issues, right? We're going to bring in a bunch of rules. Feels like we're doing something. Um, And there's nothing, again, there's nothing wrong with having rules, but we don't want it to get in the way of people thinking for themselves and understanding why we have the rule. That's kind of the... So if you have lots of rules, the key is to make sure that people understand why the rule exists and they are allowed to question why the rule exists. And often we find we can't answer that question. We've just discovered why you do that, but we've always been doing that. Mm, Problem. Yeah. You know, if we keep swinging around the circumplex, you know, if you've got that avoidant oppositional culture, I see that as a lack of ownership. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, mm. the key to oppositional is indirect opposition. So rather than confronting you, I will moan about you to somebody else kind of thing. So this Mm -hmm. notion of indirectly opposing. And it's quite insidious throughout organizations, and it does not help one little bit. Yeah, so it's always someone else's problem, yeah. right? And it's also, it's back to the rules and, that, you know, it's up to management to solve it. You know, <laughs> management have their part in it, sure. Yeah. But we all actually have to yeah. take ownership of safety. Yep, we do. Yeah. If we were to keep swinging around, you know, how does the kind of more tasky side of the circumplex impact safety, Sean? So if it's the power competitive oppositional kind of stuff. Well, one of the things about power style that I suspect we probably don't talk about enough is that there is an assumption if I am high in power, so we just step away from culture to make it about individuals, which is easier to understand initially. Mm. If I am high in power, I have this assumption that if I tell you to do something that you will do it, or if I tell you not to do something, you won't do it. Mm. That's one of the great joys of having teenage kids. One of the big lessons (laughs) that parents learn of teenagers is that they actually do no longer do what you tell them to do. They're like, they just go off and do the exact opposite to see what it does to you. (laughs) And so... Parental issues with teenagers have always said have got more to do with power style and the parents that has an oppositional style with the kids. Mm. And so the same in organizational context. It's this assumption, this is the key word, it's the assumption that if we have these rules or these procedures or these processes in place that you will adhere to them. Mm. And uh, that's a very risky assumption to make. So it ignores the fact that, again, we need to explain to you why the rule exists. We need to get your commitment to understanding that rule and that Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So the the task side of the circumplex, and particularly the oppositional, competitive, and perfectionistic stuff, is really reliant upon this assumption that if I say don't do this, you won't do that. And I'll, I'll give you an illustration of how that happened within a chemicals plant. That uh, there was a rule about not smoking in the factory for very very good reason, and that was one of the chemical offshoot gases from this particular operation, which I won't go into any detail about. When it hits heat it gets to be quite toxic, minor toxic, enough to make you sick, Mm. but it's not going to kill you kind of thing. Mm. 
And so what they had was a number of people who for some reason or other were coming down with the toxic consequences of this offshoot gas in this plant, and they couldn't figure out why the hell it was happening. So we went in there, taught cause and effect thinking and all that kind of stuff as part of our industrial safety process to people on the factory floor. We also had a biochemist come in and help us with the technical side of it, because obviously we don't understand that. And again, to cut a very long story short, one of the rules that was strictly enforced and adhered to was no smoking, because obviously that warms you up. But what they didn't realise is that a certain percentage of the staff were nipping outside for a quick fag or even worse, having it in the toilets during their break, and then coming back into the factory with warm lips. Mm. And this uh, chemical would attach itself to the lips, toxic, sick, etc., etc. So they didn't take enough time from the get-go to explain why the no smoking. You're just not allowed to smoke in the factory. Right. Uh, and if they had pointed that out to people, it might have reminded them next time we went to light up a fag in the toilets, it's not such a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hadn't thought about that themselves, and so they were focusing on some sort of external issue that might have been a problem with the plant equipment, etc. Mm-hmm. It was just an, an everyday human problem. Yeah, interesting, because we told them not to, so we assume yeah. they're not. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I can give you another illustration. This comes back from very early in HS days. One of the things that got human logistics involved in the US and safety was working with, uh, I think it was Exxon Oil from memory, and this was uh, Clay Lafferty was doing this, and he actually ended up writing a safety simulation like desert or subarctic, but it's now based around hydrogen sulfide. So when you're refining petrol, I think from memory, one of the, uh, the waste gases is uh, hydrogen sulfide, which in low quantities smells like rotten eggs, mm-hmm. and in high quantities you can't smell at all. And so they had a number of deaths in one of these big plants from hydrogen sulfide poisoning, and they just couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And when Clay talked to some people, again, you know, he lived achievement thinking, so he just went straight into cause and effect thinking around the stuff and his interviewing with various people. And one of the things that he discovered when he looked at the safety incident reports is that there was always two people involved in this. One died, the other got quite sick. Mm. And every time the second person was involved in the process and he just couldn't, it wasn't clear what the hell was going on there. Anyway, cut another long story very short. What he found again when he talked to experts is that hydrogen sulfide floats a foot or two off the floor. Mm. It doesn't go right down to ground level Mm. and or something like that. I don't pretend to be an expert on H2S. So what he discovered as part of this whole inquiry using cause and effect questioning was that what would happen was, let's just say you and I are working on this line and you're 100 metres or 100 yards in the US away from me and you're working on your part of the line. And all of a sudden I go, ooh, rotten eggs, bloody hell. And I turn around and I see you go clonk on the floor. Mm. So what do I do? I race over to you and I start giving you mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Mm. And what I don't realise is that you're actually quite safe at this point because you're in clear air under the gas. Mm. And I'm taking great big breaths of it into me and giving you mouth-to-mouth and, of course, putting it into you, but it's now mixed with other gases. I'm the one that dies. Huh. It's the second person that died when he began to look at all of this stuff. And so he wrote a simulation to teach people in Exxon the reality of hydrogen sulfide poisoning. So you are working on a production line, blah, 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 blah. One of your colleagues is 100 yards down the line doing similar work to yours. You suddenly notice uh, a smell of rotten eggs. You deduce hydrogen sulfide's going on. You look to your right. Your mate has just collapsed on the floor. What do you do? 
and it asks you the following possible steps, and there's pictures of these steps. Some of them are the wrong things to do, some are the right things to do. And it's called, by the way, learning through inquiry and discovery. We scientifically know that adults learn best through a process of inquiring into something and figuring out the answers for themselves rather than being told. So in this instance, people have to figure out what the right answer is. They then get together in small groups to discuss it and come to an agreement as a group, just like the desert survival kind of thing. But this time it's H2S survival. Mm. That's a process that we've used with many, many organizations over the years. So again, it's that applied achievement thinking. Nothing happens by magic. So the op- McClelland and Clay love this phrase. The opposite of achievement thinking is a belief in fate, luck, magic, and chance. Those four magic words. Mm. And so all too often, safety is about fate, luck, magic. And you hear expressions like, with any luck, kind of mm. thing. Mm. Very dangerous. Which is over on that dependent side, right? It's outside Correct. of my control. Hopefully, yep. stuff just works out. Yeah. You know, and interesting, just as your example, it's about it's back to getting people to think for themselves. So they came up with this, you know, they inquired and discovered the answers for themselves versus being told, you know, get down low and whatever the answer is. Yeah. Because I guess what? I bet they remember it a whole lot better than just being told one time, you know? Correct. We did another one for a retail bank many years back, which was around armed robbery. So you're working at your teller station, you look up and see two barrels of a shotgun staring straight at you, with a masked person holding it, what do you do now? And what was absolutely staggering was the number of young people that said, grab the gun. <laughs> you just died. Yeah, terrible move. Yeah. Pl- I wonder also, you, people talk tough when it's a hypothetical, but yeah. <laughs> I think the yeah. probably change in the real world. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, in saying that, there's a whole lot of safety experts on the you know interweb who would try to tell you the same thing, but uh, it's not a great idea. No, too many movies watched. Too many movies. What about, Sean, the, the other one I often see is perfectionistic cultures and, and their impact on safety. And it's an interesting one. And, you know, and maybe it harks back to something you are saying earlier, but I see companies where they have a goal of like zero incidences. Yeah. Which I totally get the, you know, the, the reasoning behind the goal. Of course, we don't want anyone hurt. That makes perfect sense. No pun intended. I wonder, though, that sometimes it drives the wrong behavior in that when we have a near miss, you know, or we have a safety incident, rather than reporting it, we start to bury it, you know, it goes under the carpet kind yep. of stuff. Yep. Well, you know? again, and if we're perfect, we've got nothing to learn anyway. Absolutely. I mean, a good example of perfectionistic culture and safety is in a, a real live organization we did work with again many years ago. He used the expression near miss. So we discovered when we looked at their records that a near miss was didn't die. Right. <laughs> Not quite the same thing, but that was so recorded lost an arm, near miss. But didn't die. Yep. Yeah. As you were asking the framing the question, I'm sort of keep saying, I know I've read some research on perfectionistic culture and safety, but I can't remember where. So I won't quote it, but we do know there is a very strong re- negative relationship between perfectionistic and product quality in the manufacturing sector. And the reasoning behind that, quite simply, is that perfectionistic cultures don't. So it must apply to safety as well, which is where I'm going. So perfectionistic cultures don't make mistakes. So therefore, if you make a mistake, you don't own up to it. So therefore, it comes back as a product recall or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the same psychology must exist in the safety field. And if this about never having an accident, people will always have accidents. So the key thing is to be able to report that accident, to analyze it, to see whether there's a pattern emerging or anything like that. 
Because a lot of, a lot of, again, in the early days when we were doing a lot of research into safety, a lot of industrial-based accidents were a consequence of people being under pressure in their non-work life. So I just had an argument with my partner. He or she is threatening to walk out, all the rest of it, and I've got to go to work. Mm. And so when I'm doing my job, I'm thinking about that, and I'm angry, and I'm frustrated, or I'm sad, and I'm emotional, or whatever mm. it might be, mm. and I'm not concentrating on what I'm doing, and boom, something blows up in my face. Mm. So, so often, the so-called reason, for want of a word, that the accident occurred was not a process or systems, but it was just somebody's under stress in their personal life, and they're allowing that to influence their inability to think about what they're doing in their work life. Mm. You know, I've seen organizations moving from a perfectionistic culture to a more achievement-orientated culture. And you know what was interesting, Sean, is reporting of near misses went up. Went up. And so they're like, oh, this isn't good. Until they realized the actual lost time injuries were going down. Yeah. You know? And so it's the classic, well, now we're we're at... They were always there. We just weren't reporting them. Yeah. You know, now we're just actually reporting them and therefore we're actually learning from them, talking about yep. them. <laughs> yep. And therefore getting better safety outcomes as far as the actual injuries are concerned. Yeah. There's lots of, uh, lots of stories around linking safety to reporting and outcomes. So I remember many years ago working with a bus transport company that incentivized their bus drivers parking their vehicles overnight when they were out of use for care and so they had to self-report on any damage that occurred to the bus while they were driving it and parking it etc etc and what was really funny about that story is that there seemed to be so many attacks on the bus when it was parked overnight (laughs) Mm -hmm. you got to wonder about that one and there's, there's a very famous story back in the federal aviation group FAA in the US many years ago this would be 30 or 40 probably 40 50 years ago they instituted a new reporting around planes near miss. So I can't remember the definition of a near miss of an airplane in the air is something like less than two kilometers apart or something like that. Uh-huh. The detail doesn't matter, but there's a set distance. So they instituted the process where the co-pilot was the co-pilot's responsibility to report a near miss. And under that process, near misses, it's what I'm trying to think, the opposite of skyrocket, plunged. Uh-huh. The number of reported near misses plunged. Why? Because who the hell is going to report a near miss driven by a pilot who is the person that recommends you for your next promotion? Right. And so that was <laughs> that was well written up way back in the, I don't know, the 70s or 80s and lots of literature. So, yeah, it's about don't incentivize this stuff and uh, think carefully about the psychology of the process of reporting. Yeah, you know, f- fascinating. So what I'm hearing, Sean, is you know, safety is an outcome of culture. We have a culture. We have expectations of how people should behave in this organization. And those expectations and those behaviors drive outcomes such as safety amongst yep. others. Yep. Right. And so primarily we want people thinking. And so we want them thinking about cause and effect. Their effort makes a difference. So what they do actually impacts it. Yep. Which is the opposite of fate like magic chance. It's the opposite of, or it's understanding why we have the rule rather than just having the rule. Correct. It's getting people to think through it for themselves, right? Yep. So, you know, that's something to think about with your safety training is rather than just telling people a bunch of stuff, get them to think through it. It's not just assuming people are doing what they're doing because you tell them to. Yep. And it's not sweeping stuff under the rug because we're perfect. It goes back to, I mean, I don't know whether it's an urban myth, but there's a very old 
story in our industry of organizational development about the Egyptian king. They found this supposedly chiseled, carved on the side of a wall in his temple. Mm. And said, if you, if you want to know what's going on in the kingdom, spend some time down at the well. So the the uh, analogy for us is very true. If you want to know what's going on, spend some time out there with the people. So get them to say, I mean, again, part of the process we used to do with this almost guaranteed thing way back was run a, a process with the people at the, again, the factory floor, for want of an expression, to say, what are the safety issues for you? What you know, what are the five biggest safety issues you encounter in, on a daily basis? And they will tell you. Uh. And then you ask them what needs to be done about it, they'll also answer that question if you ask it the right way and use a good process to get it. Mm. There you go. People have to own it for themselves. Yep. Yep. That's the last one. All right, Sean, thanks very much for your insights on that. You know, let's get the culture right and it leads to outcomes like safety. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.